let's jump back in to our study of this present time. We have had a subset um, of messages in the bigger picture of this present time uh, talking about works. A few weeks ago, we talked about the, um, the value of works. We, we have to say this from time to time that we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, but works have a place in our reward, in our intimacy with the Lord, the legacy that we leave behind. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time digging deeper. First of all, we talked about the importance of works. Then we talked about the evaluation of works at the judgment seat. What are the criteria for judgment? How will God look at us? It's a place where everything will be made clear, where the first may be last and the last may be first. It's what one theologian called an upside-down kingdom. It's from heaven's perspective, not from our own. And then today I want to wrap up this little subset, three-message subset, by talking about the, not the importance or evaluation of our works, but the actual reward of our works. And we're going to talk about crowns, five crowns. Now, um, the first thing we want to do is pray that God will give us very special understanding today, that I'll preach well, that you'll hear well, and that fruit will come out of this. So we want to pray for that. I want to remind you that God is breaking sorrow and sadness and shame off of us, and he's doing that in so many ways. I've had so many beautiful confirmations this week. So let's begin praying for the service, but also look to the screen and let's pray as our custom is the Lord's Prayer together. Join me, please. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we also open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We are so thankful for what you are doing, the special work that we're seeing in so many places, in so many groups of people not only here in North America, but around the world. We're thankful for the grace of God. And we say again, come Holy Spirit. Come in a way that is pleasing to you. In a way that we need, that we may not even understand that we need. We welcome the correction of the Holy Spirit. We welcome your encouragement. We welcome your presence and your power and we say come because we remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 that we have to abide in you and without you we can do nothing. So help us, Lord, to hear well. Help me to preach well. Let the Spirit take this word that is living itself and help us to have an understanding of it as we talk about the idea of reward. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have had the privilege a, a few times to go to the Tower of London, and as part of that tour, you can go in and see the crown jewels. Now, I'm not 
much into jewelry. I don't know much about it. But I want to tell you, going into that room uh, or that series of rooms was breathtaking. I mean, it, at no point did I say, boy, I'd like to have a replica of that crown to wear to church. Or <laughs> at no place did I, could I see myself in an environment where I would want to wear something like that, certainly not be worthy to, to wear something like that. But I got to tell you, it's, it's really breathtaking. Pictures don't do it justice. And as I went through, I caught myself thinking, this is, this is amazing. But I wasn't amazed because of the jewels or the gold or the silver or anything else of value. What I was in awe of, other than that initial, the beauty of it, was what those jewels represented. I am a history guy, and I remember when they give the date for a crown, I remember, you know, that was this king, that was that queen, that was during this war, that was in that house that was ruling. And, and it was, I, I fell more and more in love with the room, not because of the riches, but because of what it represented, what it symbolized, what was behind it when I thought who had worn that crown or held that scepter. And... Um, I think that we, in, in this day and age, we're, we have the internet, we have books, we, we're so visually deadened, I think, to things of beauty because they're just, all you got to do is push a button. But there was a time, um, especially during Bible days, when there were things that don't mean a lot to us, like crowns. I mean, we're, we're America, we don't have crowns, except for Miss America, you know, and um, we don't have scepters. And even the strongest leader in the land is told he can only serve four or eight years. Then he's got to step aside. So we're not accustomed to the power and the majesty that's associated when the Lord, through the apostles, begin to promise us the idea of a crown. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, the authority, the riches the esteem, the honor that was connected to the idea of a crown. I read in my devotions yesterday how David went and conquered a city and there, the king in that city uh, had this majestic crown with this very special jewel. And the Bible says that David took that out of his crown, the, the, the uh, aliens, uh, pagans, king's crown, and put it on his crown. And that represented, it, it wasn't that the, the stone was so magnificent, it was, but it was that David overcame. It represented a victory. So when we think about crowns, <clears throat> I realize the battle we've got to fight is that we don't, we don't think in terms of crowns as, as Americans. We don't think in terms of crowns. But... Um, I want you to understand what was going on. This may be a poor way of putting it because I know God's personality, he, he's not like us. Some of us have this kind of personality. Some have that kind of personality. And that doesn't mean one is better than the other. And there's, certainly God doesn't have good sides and bad sides. But maybe the closest analogy to help us begin to wrap our heads around this idea of a crown, boy, that's funny. That's funny because a crown wraps around. But anyway, <laughs> maybe one of the 
best pictures to help us understand is, um, I, think is I think Gary Chapman was his name. He wrote the book, I think it was Gary, um, Lo The Five Love Languages. And what the five love languages teach us is that there are five basic expressions by which we express love or we receive love. It's the way we want to receive love. It's the way we communicate love. It, it's our comfortable zone. It's, uh, and it might be words of affirmation. It might be physical touch. It might be gifts or acts of service. It could be any of those things. And the, the book says that the key to success whether it's in employee-employer relationships or whether it's in parent-child relationships or husband and wife or church or whatever, any kind of relationships, is to understand each other's love language so that we're able to understand what's important to the person you're trying to communicate with. Um, and if you've read the book or, or been through one of those classes, you understand um, what you do is you try to understand the best way to communicate to the person you're reaching out to, and you hope that they will make the same effort to you. Uh, God knew that David had a sense of justice that was the most underrated dynamic of David's personality was his sense of justice. So when God wanted to hammer home the weight of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, he sent Nathan the prophet with a story about justice. A rich man who had flock after flock after flock takes the one pet sheep from a poor man and claims it for himself, even though he had all of these other sheep. And David said, as God is my witness, this man deserve, deserves to die. And then, because Nathan spoke in David's love language so that David could understand through the direction of the Lord, David, when Nathan said, you are the rich man, you are the man that did this, David realized what he had done shattered his sense of security and, and defensiveness because I have fought for justice all of my kingship and now I have done the most unjust thing imaginable. So the, the advantage of love languages is that it helps us not only express ourselves well, but it helps us understand someone even if it's someone we may have a conflict with. When you see these five crowns, I think, my opinion, I think they are helping us see that there are five things uh, that God values, especially in terms of our service. Now, I don't believe this is the only rewards there will be. There are far too many other uh, things that he talks to us about, even our words will be, uh, will be called to account for. But call this the big five. Call this uh, 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 rewards that are on a level unto themselves. I think that many of our rewards will be things we didn't even realize we had done. Did you, did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? When Jesus said, there will come a day when uh, I will say, uh, come into the kingdom because when I was in prison, you visited me. 
When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry or naked, you gave me food and clothing. And this will be the response of his people. When did we do this? We, when? When did this ever happen? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, your brethren, you've done it to me. I, I believe most of our reward will be a surprise not only to your competitors, but it will be a surprise to us ourselves because God goes into deep places in our hearts to reward us that we might not even realize. That ought to be encouraging. That ought to be exciting. But that ought to be something we can say amen and go home on, but I'm far too selfish to do that. <laughs> but, uh, but, there, but there are things that I think are so out there that God said these are crowns you can receive they, they, they may be a tender part of God's heart. They may just be the most observable things. They may be the most effective things. I don't know. But five things are highlighted. And I've wondered if they're not the love language of God. Now, I need to say this before we try to run through this outline. Um, there has been a fight for 15, 1,600 years in the Christian church um, may, maybe not a fight. It, it, one time it was a fight, but maybe just a preference. There was a time when the church broke down into two camps about 15, 1600 years ago, and it, it, it just intensified for about five or 600 years. And it was the fight between scholasticism and mysticism. Um, by scholasticism, it, there were those that... Um, walked in academics very heavily. To them, the kingdom of God is furthered by how I study. To them, the kingdom of God was studied by how well we are, I mean, was advanced by how well we articulate theology. And, uh, and then there were those that said, no, what matters is the power of the Holy Spirit. As early as the late 200s, there was an argument going on in the church when they were trying to systematize the works of the Holy Spirit. They said, this is of God and this is not of God. There were others. Uh, who was it, Tertullian, that said, hey, since when were we able to put the Holy Spirit in a box and say, this is him and, and, and this is not him? And, and so the church split, and there's still a pretty good split in the church. I don't mean good significant split in the church today over scholasticism and over mysticism. Scholastics say it's the letter of the law. Scholastics say it's higher and lower criticism. Scholastics say it's what you get in seminary. And then the mystics over here says, no, it's not what you get in cemeteries. Uh, I mean, seminaries, that's what they would say. You know, they say it's the move of God. Now, I, I really believe, and both sides would say this, but they don't live by it. There has to be a mix of scholasticism and academics and the mysticism, the, 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 the move of the Spirit. Uh, somebody said, if you're all word, you dry up. If you're uh, all spirit, you blow up. But if you're word and spirit, you grow up. And that's what we're after. Um, but what I'm trying to say is one of the ways this split manifests itself is there are those um, uh, who would say something like this. The Bible is literally true. Every word of the Bible is literally true. 
And then there are those that say, no, the Bible's a collection of examples and allegories and stories. Some even use the word myths. And I think that's a very low view of Scripture. Those that say it, it the word is, is literally true. That's a very high view of Scripture. But I, I, and I, I, I believe the word is literally true. I believe it says what it means and means what it says. But, but I think we need to understand while we're trying to figure out what do I want a crown for? Um, I believe everything in the Bible is literally true, but sometimes it's explained to us Sometimes it's explained to us in figurative terms. And you've got to be a diligent student and you've got to be a tender heart to understand when something is a literal this or if it's this, a literal thing that represents something that is also literally true. For instance, heaven and hell. Um, they, you can read every word there is to read. Now, it, now listen to me because if you only hear half of what I'm going to say, You'll go to another church next week. Um, but but all, you can take all that's said about heaven, about streets of gold and gates of pearl. I remember one of my professors saying, I, I don't get excited about a gate of pearl. He was an old West Florida boy. He said, what I get excited about is getting a mega cracker and sitting down and eating the oyster that produced that pearl. That's what I'm excited about, you know. But, uh, and we can talk about fountains and, and all of this, all of this. Is that literally true? Yes, I believe there is a literal heaven. But I also believe that we understand very little about heaven because no matter what we read about heaven in Scripture, it's an attempt in our terms to explain something that is beyond our comprehension. In, in other words, heaven, no matter how wonderful it's been described, is going to be immeasurably, incomprehensibly better than anything we can imagine. And uh, so there are times that God says, look, this is what it's like, and, but, it's, but it's more. Same thing with hell. I think hell, we talk about worms and the fire that is not quenched and uh, forever and ever. And I think you can take the most horrific description of hell and it does not begin, it does not begin to depict the hopelessness and the terror of that place called hell. But is heaven literal? Yes. Is hell literal? Yes. Uh, somebody got all upset at Billy Graham because he said, uh, they said, do you believe that heaven is a place of literal flame? And they took part of his answer. He said, no, I don't think it's literal thing. And people went ballistic. They said, he's gone, li uh, he's gone liberal. He, he doesn't believe the word of God. But if you'd read the rest of Billy Graham's quote, what he said was, it's not literal flame. That would only destroy the flesh. He said, it is a literal flame with a spiritual life that burns forever. And, and that's exactly what he was saying. He said, I don't think it's in the realm of human vocabulary to explain the fires of hell. But the picture we have is that it is destructive and that it is forever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes, I, I believe every truth in the Bible is literally true. I don't think any of them are allegories. I don't think any of them are, are myths. I don't think any of them are accommodation of unbelief, 
but I do know that we are limited in our ability to understand spiritual realities. You say, oh, no, not me. I, I got a pretty good grip on it. I've had visions, you know, or I've seen angels. Well, can I tell you what the Bible says about the little bit that we do know even from Scripture? The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, okay? But not just that, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. We can't even comprehend. It would never occur to us. But there's a few things that same verse says, or that same passage says, there are a few things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. God has revealed to us by his spirit. He said, but right now we see through a glass darkly. That day we'll understand. See, whenever we see Jesus, I've said this before, he said, John said, beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now we are his children. In his gospel, John said, we've already passed from death to life. But he said this, it has not appeared to us. It has not occurred to us. It is not in our realm of thinking what we shall be like. I have reckoned that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's not even the glory we'll see. That's what we're going to be. We can't comprehend what we are. But John would say, but we know that when, we, when he shall appear, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, I went to this great length to explain that everything in the Bible is about a literal truth. But when you get into places like the book of Revelation, that's basically apocryphal, some of the chapters of the Old Testament, it's clear that God is writing in symbolism. But please hear me. Symbolism does not lessen the truth. Symbolism simply says you couldn't understand the reality. So let me, let me point you in the right direction. Are you with me? That's what crowns may be. I personally think I wouldn't be surprised if it's a literal crown and a spiritual significance. Um, in other words, I think, I, I, I'm, you know, you say, well, no, I believe it's literal crowns. You can't change my mind. It's okay. But some of you are so talented and so gracious and so serving God, you're going to get four or five crowns. And how are you going to figure out which crown to wear to which event? <laughs> you can't wear them all at once, you know, unless God has this multi-decker thing. <laughs> hey, what I'm saying, loved ones, is don't get stumbled up over a crown. I promise you, if crowns don't turn you on, when you see one of his, you'll, you'll be converted. If it's representative of honor, then you'll understand that too. I remember going to Eglin Air Force Base to, uh, uh, they had a great clergy day uh, where all the pastors would come in and they would, boy, they would give us tour of, of aircraft and we got to, they would fire a warthog for us, which was, is an amazing, that A-10, an amazing aircraft, and give us the, the spent cartridges. It, it, was, it was tremendous. And as I was going in, there was a sign, and there was a hostess at the front door and said, there's coffee and refreshments. Um, 
just if you need anything, if you can't find anything, there are uh, hosts and hostesses all through the building. Just ask them. So I went in and, and um, I, I, you know, I wanted some coffee and the coffee pot was empty. So I just went up to one of the young ladies that was standing around. She looked, I say young, you know, she 30-ish, I would say. And um, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, um, but I, the coffee pot is empty. Uh, can you tell me where I can get some or, or would it be possible for you to, to get a cup for me? And she looked at me and said, absolutely, sir. And she went off and came back with coffee. And my buddy hit me, just whop. He said, what are you doing? I said, I just asked one of the hostesses for a cup of coffee. He said, don't you know what this stuff up here on her shoulder means? Didn't you recognize her name tag? I said, no. He said, she's a lieutenant colonel who is becoming a full bird colonel because she has been promoted to the leader of a large part of this base. And you ask her to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe that's why she's getting promoted. She had a servant's heart and she went and got me. But you know, the difference between me and my buddy is he was a military brat and I wasn't. And he understood all the, the ranks, all the stripes, all the, the stars. And I didn't understand what that star meant. I, to me, I thought maybe it was for first class service, you know, <laughs> like, like at Cracker Barrel. I didn't know. <laughs> but the moment, the moment you begin to understand that there are some things in Scripture, there are some things in Scripture that may or may not be literal you know, true. I mean, do, do the do the beasts in Revelation uh, that sting with their tail and fire? Uh, is that, are those literal beasts, or is that is that the way uh, God communicated futuristic weapons to a first century church? I don't know, but I'm telling you that doesn't matter. We know God's word is true, and we know God's word is literal. But sometimes God may use a figurative example. You know, the description of the beautiful woman in uh, the Song of Solomon? I mean, if, if that's a literal description, that woman would be in a circus. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, a neck like a tower, breasts like deer. I mean... It's very clear that that description was representing a different kind of beauty. Um, now, and the, you say, Pastor, why are you stuck on this? I'm not stuck. I'm trying to get myself out of a hole. Um, <laughs> I get so many questions like this. You know, do we believe the Bible is literally true? Yes, the Bible is literally true. And even when a figurative example or picture is used... That may not be the literal thing, but it is representing a literal thing. I tell you what, no matter how hell is described, I can tell you it's worse. The reality is worse. No matter how heaven is described, I tell you the reality is greater. No matter how Jesus is described coming back in Revelation, the reality when we see him, it cannot be compared to mere words. 
these things have to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, but we also believe that sometimes those literal things are described with figurative things. Okay? Now, I, I hope you understand what I'm saying because that'll help you with a lot of passages that you come upon. The crowns may be like stars on a high-ranking officer's shoulders, or they may be like any kind of uniform where all that you see is here's a person, but when you see the uniform, this is what that person represents in terms of authority, experience, accomplishment. And we may get there. It may be a literal crown. It may be some, some shroud of glory. I mean, the, the crowns may be simply the glory that surrounds us that will be recognizable. The point is we want to get to heaven and we want to receive rewards. So don't get hung up over what those rewards look like. Paul said to the Corinthians, we read this last week, if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. Now, rewards are for our service. We, you know, even some, we're going to go over a reward called the crown of life. And some people say, well, everybody has that. That's salvation. It's, it's depicted as a reward. And salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift. We all will have the honor of being the children of God. All of us will be just like him. All of us. The thief on the cross that had no chance to do any works for the Lord will still be rewarded for the influence his story, his testimony has had. It, we all, we all will receive a reward uh, and there's a little more explanation in Ephesians 6. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each of us. What? Each of us are going to be rewarded. What for? For the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Now, I, I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about uh, some mistaken ideas, and then I want to try to paint the right idea of what rewards will look like. Then we'll do some Christian life lessons to take it home. Let, let me hurry. Here are some misconceptions. The first misconception or first mistaken idea is that heaven will be the same for everyone. We enter our view into it, and I've, I've heard mighty men and women of God say, no, works have nothing to do with it. Heaven's going to be the same for everybody. That's not the picture that Jesus or the New Testament paints. Um, now, the access to heaven is the same for everybody. The, the, the way we get to heaven is the same for everybody. But Jesus, in closing out the book of Revelation, said this, Pay attention, I'm coming suddenly and I'm bringing my reward to give to everyone. How are we gonna, what are we going to be rewarded for? The way they have lived for me. Our reward is based on the way we have lived for him. Okay, So heaven is not the same for everyone. I, I don't mean by that that some of us are going to go there and be servants. I don't mean by that that some of us are going to go and live in a, in a ghetto part of heaven, you know. Um, I don't mean that some of us will never see Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't mean that at all. But there is going to be an honor 
in heaven. How will it be manifested? I, I don't know. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week and he was talking about a, a story that I think it was Rick Joyner told that Rick Joyner had a vision and in this vision he went to heaven and as he got into heaven, to what, what you would call into heaven, he said he met some of the greatest Christians he had ever studied in history. And to make a long story short, Rick Joyner said, I, I kind of was amazed that I was let in with these people. And one of them that he had admired basically said this or something like it. You don't understand. This is the outer edge of heaven. This is as far as we've gotten. This is the outer edge of heaven. Now, I, I don't know that that's literally the way it's going to be. But I do think that that does remind us of something. God doesn't see like we see. And God doesn't judge the way we judge. I don't need to re-preach last week's sermon. But uh, loved ones, heaven is beyond our... Again, it's not just something that we didn't think of. It's beyond... Hey, heaven is beyond... It's beyond... It's beyond... It's impossible for any of us to understand the beauty of heaven except for the little tidbits that Jesus gives us in his word. And he's pointing us in a direction. You might as well look out the peephole on your front door and say, ah, the world. <laughs> you see maybe a hundred feet and it's distorted. That's the best way. That's, that's not because the word of God is, is so weak. It's because we are so broken and only when we see Jesus will we have the capacity to begin to see what he intends us to see. Now, uh, the second misconception is that rewards are the reason we serve Jesus. I've heard people, you know, they, they don't like it when somebody says, well, I'll tell you what, let me do the third one first to kind of set the stage. The third misconception is that truly spiritual people don't want rewards. Um, you know, a lot of us grew up with the idea, you're going to get a reward, but if you want to get in God's good side, just turn it down. Say, oh, you know, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I don't need a reward. That is the most insulting, blasphemous thing you could do to take a command and an order of the kingdom of God and put it to the side saying, oh, it's, I don't need that. Yes, you do. Like the man that was preaching his first sermon and he was preaching outdoors and had his sermon word for word printed out and put his notes down. The wind blew his pages away and in an attempt to recover, he said, oh, I don't need those notes. And he stumbled around for about 30 seconds and then somebody got up and picked him up and said, maybe you do need these <laughs> notes here. It's wrong to say that truly spiritual people don't need rewards. Uh, or, or, or don't want rewards. Uh, there's something wrong with us if we don't want rewards. But, going back up one to B, the other misconception is that, are that rewards are the reason we serve Jesus. And preachers will take you down both extremes. You know, um, Andre Crouch sang a song back during the Civil War when I was in college. And <laughs> if heaven was never promised to me, Da, 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 da. 
it's been worth just serving the Lord, just having the Lord in my life. And I thought that was a beautiful song. I thought it was a beautiful sentiment. And I heard somebody just blast that to pieces. Paul wanted rewards. Paul demanded rewards. Paul didn't demand rewards. Paul knew rewards were a real thing. And he said, I want to live my life so that I get those rewards. He wasn't demanding it. He knew he was not worthy of it. But we need to also be careful that we don't work for the rewards, but we work knowing rewards will come. And we better be careful before we say rewards don't matter. Because have you ever given a gift to somebody? Something that means something to you? The, the, you're so delighted to give it and the person you gave it to thought it was nothing? That's devastating. That's insulting. And we need to learn to graciously accept gifts from others. Um, somebody says, you did good teaching that class. Don't, don't say, oh, you know, oh, I don't do it for a claim. Well, we know that. Everybody knows that. Um, I, I don't even think it's good. You know, there used to be a teaching that was pretty strong in the Bill Gothard community talking about deferring the, the, the praise, deferring the glory. If somebody said you did something good, you find somebody else to pat on the back. And there's a place for that. But I also want you to know somebody has just spent their life's capital on saying thank you to you. And you've just said, oh, it doesn't matter. Go give it to someone else. I think one of the things that Chris, boy, you're quiet. I think one of the things... <laughs> that Christians are particularly weak on is learning how to say thank you. Even, even, you know, oh, it was the Lord. The Lord did that. I want to say it wasn't that good. It, it wasn't that good. You say, well, pastor, what do I do when someone thanks me? You say, or, or someone compliments me, say thank you. Say thank you. Now, there may be a time when you say, oh, thank you, but and I appreciate that, but I couldn't have done it without so-and-so. That's different. But we don't cavalierly just throw someone's gift away. And, we, and it's that way with the Lord. We better be careful that we don't disregard the reward. And Paul had that balance. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. He said, I am the worst of the worst. I don't deserve anything. But God said he will reward us for this kind of living. So I want to do the best I can so that I receive the greatest reward I can receive. And that's, that's, that is a sign of maturity. And that has not been taught in our churches well enough. Now, um, let's go to another quick thought. I want you to see three things that carry with it, maybe four, that carry with it the idea that reward is a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing. Um, number one, reward has as its foundation, it's God's way of revealing to everyone and of saying thank you to us for how much we loved him. You see, do you love me, Peter? Then tend my sheep. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. John summarized it this way. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That wasn't a, a, a manipulative statement. Like somebody out on a date saying, oh, if you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll do that. That's manipulative. That's evil. That's carnality at its worst. Jesus wasn't saying, if you love me, do what I say. No, Jesus was saying, 
I know I'm telling you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, mind and strength. And I know that's a daunting challenge. So this is where you start. If you love me, start by keeping my commandments. Just do what I tell you to do. And he said it is based on love. The second thing, it is based on justice. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God said, if I didn't reward you for the way you served me, that would be unjust. He said, that would be like sending an innocent man to jail. That would be like executing the wrong person. That would be like stealing a senior's retirement fund. That, that would be like all of these scams and all of this mistreatment and injustice that you see all over the world. He said, my kingdom operates on two pillars, righteousness and justice. Righteousness, justice, and righteousness. He says, when you get into the kingdom of God, you're going to have righteousness and you're going to have justice. And he says, if I did not say thank you, if I did not reward you for your works, he said, I'm not going to let that become a platform for false humility. It would be unjust for me to not say thank you. And it's based on honor. It's based on honor. God wants to to reward our love. God wants to be just and show. That's again, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Uh, it's, it's an upside down kingdom. We will be surprised at who the truly great, great recipients of honor are in the kingdom of God. But it's also based on God honoring us. Uh, when we should all live for the moment when God says, well done. Um, we will not be allowed to cheapen the Lord's reward with false humility on that day. We must learn that reward is not a matter of us craving the praises of man. It is a matter of us understanding the true cost of reward. You see, Jesus understands the true nature of true honor. That's why he let, Justin mentioned this earlier, that's why he let the woman pour out an extravagant gift on him while Judas was saying, why this waste? We could have sold. I mean, I mean, it had happened twice. Jesus allowed it twice. And he said, we could have sold this money and given it to the poor. But the scriptures point out, Judas didn't say that because he truly cared for the poor, but because he kept the purse and he used to take from it without permission. See, he will not allow his reward of us to be cheapened by being disregarded. Now, let me just give you this question to think on before we um, run through the crowns. Barzillai was a man that fed David when he had to flee Jerusalem at the rebellion of Absalom, his son, and he went out across the Kidron Valley and then across the Jordan and when he crossed over to Jordan, and you remember he, David got all kinds of criticism and stuff on his way out. Um, you know, a lot of people thought, well, now's my chance to take a shot at David. He's been run off the throne. And there was some cruelty that was said to him, and David took it mag magnanimously. But uh, that's another sermon for another time. But when he got on the other side, there was a man called Barzillai. 
He was an old man. He was 80 years old. No offense to any octogenarians we have today. But that, that's, I think, no matter where you look at it from, 80 is a long time, you know. He was 80 years old and he was wealthy and he gave David food and comfort and sleep gear and everything he needed to survive. And when Absalom was defeated and David was coming back across the Jordan, uh, as he was getting ready to cross the Jordan, Barzillai came out to welcome the king. The king was about to cross the Jordan to go back to Jerusalem. And David said, Barzillai, come to Jerusalem with me. You have served me so magnificently through the years, and especially in my toughest hour. You came to me. You risked everything to serve me. Come back and you'll sit at my table. And here was David saying, you will live on the king's tab for the rest of your life. But I think there was something else going on here. Barzillai was a phenomenal counselor. And you remember David's chief counselor, Ahithophel? He betrayed David and he sided with Absalom. And David's prayer was, Lord, confound the wisdom of Ahithophel. It was said in those days that Ahithophel's counsel, it was so highly esteemed that when Ahithophel spoke, everybody said, this is the voice of God. Can you imagine having somebody in your life that is so wise that every time they speak, you said, this is straight from God. Well, that's what he was like. And he is now uh, out of the picture. He, he betrayed David. And David prayed that the counsel of Ahithophel would be confounded. And David had a spy that remained behind and picked apart the strategy of Ahithophel. And if they had followed Ahithophel, David would have died. But the Lord did what David asked. He confounded the counsel of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was wise enough that even though he was evil in his heart, he realized that this is not going to work. David's going to come back. He went home, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. So David's number one counselor is out of the way. He, 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 David doesn't know who he's going to have as his counselor. But here is Barzillai, a man year for year, probably as wiser, wiser than Ahithophel and had served David faithfully. And David said, come back with me. I, don't, I know you don't need my meal. You don't need my provision, but I need you. I need you to sit at my table and not just eat supper with me, but be my counselor. And Barzillai, I, I, I don't know. I can't judge a man's heart. And God blessed anyway. But you know what Ahithophel, I mean, what Barzillai said? He said, oh, king, he said, it's too late. I'm 80 years old. And uh, I think the CEV version says, my body's just numb, you know. Um, it, it, now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but <laughs> the body's just numb. I, he said, I can hardly get around. So he said, it's too late. And you know what else he said? It's so far. It's too far. He said, the journey is too long and arduous. It would be too hard I would be too much of a burden on you, and I am too unworthy. And this is what he said, and we try to do this a lot of times when we think we're being truly spiritual and offering God something less than what he wants to do for us. He said, take my son, Kimham, take him back with you. And David looks at his old friend 
and he looks at Kim Ham, who was there by his father. David said, I'll, I'll take Kim Ham. I'll bring him back with me. He'll sit at my table. And Barzillai, listen, I'll do anything, anything for your son that you ask me to do for him. Kim Ham is not a problem. But this is for you. This is your opportunity. I, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. You know, it, it was like Abraham. Abraham God said, I'm going to give you Isaac, a son that is the son of promise. And Abraham had a son. His name was Ishmael. And Abraham had carried this promise so long that, that when God said, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son, Abraham cried out. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, he said, I've carried this thing too long. I've waited too long. I've been disappointed year after year after year after year. Lord, just, just let Ishmael live before you. And you know what God did? He said, I'll bless Ishmael then. I'll bless him. I'll make a great nation of him. I will bless him so that he knows he's the son of Abraham. But I am still going to do this with you and Sarah. And that was Isaac. And loved ones, I know I'm all over the place today. But I mean, I have to do this. There's so much God's trying to hurt in, in our lives. I think sometimes when we get to rewards, we are so falsely led to believe that it is ignoble for us to look for rewards. And so we actually not only dishonor what God wants to do for us, but we are constantly offering him suggestions of something else to do when he is still holding out something phenomenal and blessed for you. I've always wondered what would have happened what would have happened if Barzillai had gone with David and become his counselor? We'll never know. Now, there is the sacred idea of pursuing reward. Jesus said, listen, there are shepherds and there are hirelings. They both have the same work. They may both do the same thing. But the difference in the shepherd is he gives his life for the sheep and a hireling flees when danger comes. Now, let's go to those crowns quickly because I know you've got lunch reservations. The word is a very simple word. It's the word for crown. It's reward for victorious living. And I want to just cover these five things. Understanding now that they may or may not be literal crowns. But if they're literal, they have to be of a, of, of a substance that's wearable. But whatever a crown is, first of all, there and, and this is just an introduction. You can do your own study. The first is the crown of life. The crown of life. This is a reward for those who overcome, for those who persevere. You say, well, that's, that's for all Christians. No, because I want to tell you, I've pastored long enough to know not all Christians overcome. Not all Christians persevere. Um, not all Christians can break out of the cycles that they've had in their life over and over. We praise God for those that do. God offers phenomenal grace. When Paul speaks to the people of God, he names some of the most difficult sins to imagine. And, and some of them we're not comfortable saying they're forgivable even in our, in our natural flesh. But you know what Paul was able to say? He said, such were some of you. He said, take this horrible list. Every one of you or some of you were these things I just listed. 
But, but, now you are washed. Now you are clean. Now you are sanctified. Now you are justified. You see, Paul understood that no matter what we were, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay there. We can overcome and we can persevere. This crown of life is also known as the victor's crown. So listen, if you are going through a difficulty, a trial, a persecution, if you're going through suffering right now, if you're like me, your first action is how do I get out of this? But listen to what James suggests, James 1.12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. That's why most of us never get past James 1 in our reading. <laughs> because we don't want somebody to tell us the trial we're going through makes us blessed. Oh, no. He says, you're blessed because having stood the test, tests are real. And let me just let you know something. Again, another sermon for another time. But there are two words that talk about our troubles and difficulties we go through. One is the word perazzo, root word perazzo, which means to be tempted. To, to be tempted. But the other word uh, is the word that means to be put to the test with the expectation of passing. I've said it before. A good teacher gives her students tests expecting them to pass the test. A good teacher will give his students exams in order for them to advance to the next level. It's only a perverted mind that says, how many can I fail? I mean, that's a sick teacher. I've had a few of them. Let me talk to you about, no, I don't have time. <laughs> but he says, if it's temptation, God's never behind that and run to Jesus. But if it's a trial, he says, understand that the person that stands the test will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In Revelation 2.10, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now that's the first one. Uh, Barry McGuire used to sing a song, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser with all she had to say. Then I walked a mile with sorrow, never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her. Sorrow walked with me. There is a reward for embracing suffering. Not, I'm not talking about caving in. I think if we can get well or get better or get out, that's fine to do. But until the Lord provides it, if we can just keep loving and instead of insisting on getting out, we get through. We get through. It's hard. I know it's hard. I, I've, I've struggled with that all my life. All of us do usually. In Revelation 2, be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Here's the second crown. This is called not the crown of life, but the imperishable crown. It's also called the incorruptible crown, depending on the version that you read. Uh, it is a reward for self-denial and discipline. See, now the first reward is for overcoming, just overcoming. You're, you face a challenge and you overcome it. You face persecution, you overcome it. You face disappointment and you overcome it. Um, 
But the second one is for those that just conduct the affairs of their life in a way that they are denying their self and they're walking in discipline. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run not with uncertainty. I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, bringing it under subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul wasn't saying I preach to others because if I'm not careful, I can end up going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I might not win the reward that God wants me to win if I don't discipline myself, if I don't stay on target and stay on, uh, on track. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. Okay, now the crown of life is about overcoming. The imperishable crown is about discipline and self-denial for the cause of the Lord. Number three, the crown of righteousness I love this. This is a reward for those who prioritize intimacy with God and in particular. See, there's so many things in the kingdom, but this is one thing that Jesus says ought to be at the core of your heart every day, the longing for the return of Christ. The longing for the return of Christ. He said to Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Loved ones, there's something. You've got to realize the importance of the Spirit speaking through John. In the last chapter of the book, he says, let the Spirit say come. Let the bride say come. He said the marching orders of the church are to say even so come Lord Jesus. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we try to make this earth as much like the kingdom as possible but loved ones we know from scripture that's not going to be fulfilled in its entirety until Jesus comes. So there's a special place for those that press in for intimacy and for those that love the return of the Lord. That's why I keep preaching. I, and I, I started this about, I don't know, five, six years ago. I said the rest of my ministry is going to be devoted to getting people to move into an intimate walk with Christ. That is the vital thing, and there is a reward for those that will prioritize intimacy. You see, when we prioritize intimacy, He is the Lord of Lords. If we don't prioritize intimacy, then He's our janitor in the basement, He's crisis manager. I remember Mr. Richardson or in, in my elementary school, quiet man unassuming. I, I think I could count on my fingers the number of words I heard him say in six years at Agnes McReynolds Elementary School. He was a wonderful man, but you almost never saw him until somebody threw up or somebody wet their pants or somebody spilled a tray of food or knocked over the paint on art day. And then the teachers would call and he would come with his mop in his bucket. He'd clean up without a word and then he'd leave. And we were happy. We had him. 
till the next crisis. We want to be sure, oh, we'll go to heaven because we go to heaven by the grace of God. But we, when we go to heaven, we want to be sure we know him as something more than the janitor in the basement. We want him to be the Lord of our lives. That's the crown of righteousness. Number four, there's the crown of glory. The crown of glory. Now this is a reward for shepherds of the flock. It may mean that those who are what we would call pastors of a flock, it may mean that this is especially for them. I think in the context of Peter, it would mean what we might call pastors and elders uh, of a flock. But I also think there might be, I mean, there just might be, this might be a reward, and I personally think it is, that's for anybody with a shepherding role. You may have eight little royal rangers that follow you around like puppies, and you shepherd them. I think you may be eligible for the crown of glory. You may be a small group leader because a church our size, the pastors can't, the pastors cannot physically tend to everything that happens. I mean, it's an impossibility. It's not that we're unwilling. We can't do it. You know, it would be like every pastor had to tend to the need of 200 people every day. And it's an impossibility. But some of you are group leaders some of you are class leaders. Some of you are ministry leaders. And you know, you know, and our church does this so well. When there's an emergency, it's usually the group leader or that fellowship group leader that is the first one contacted. And those people are as much shepherds as any pastor, vocational pastor ever is. But this is what Peter said, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. That's, and that not pursuing dishonest gain makes it imply that he's probably talking about vocational shepherds, but the principle, I think, goes across the board. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, uh, I forgot the last one, the crown of rejoicing. This is a reward for soul winners. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and in Philippians 1, Paul says, the souls that I have brought to Christ are my crown of rejoicing. You say, well, I've never really led anybody to the Lord. Well, it's okay because I, I know some missionaries, for instance, that they're in very hard places. And I know a missionary that, in my opinion, was one of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century. And he labored for something like 12 years before he had his first convert because it was such an incredibly tough field. Uh, I, I've known other people that are just in the right place at the right time and God just did a work and he just got to direct traffic, you know. Um, and and both, neither of those is bad or good in and of themselves. I'm saying it's a matter of investing in the winning of souls. See, Paul put it this way. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gives the increase any way he wants to. You see, when uh, I had a friend that was an evangelist for years, and every time I'd see him, I mean, it was, I loved it. I loved him. He was a man of God, a devout man of God. And he was preaching the night I gave my life to Jesus. And he would always say, this is, this is my convert. I was preaching when this young man came to Christ, and he's a pastor now. And that's true. He was, he was pastoring 
But when I think of who led me to the Lord, when I think of who led me to the Lord, it was my pastor and it was my mother because of the incredible seed they planted into my life. When I think of who led me to the Lord, I think of Sister Godwin. I think of Sister Harrelson. I think of Brother Pete. I think of a half dozen other people that prayed me through to salvation. And when I was seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they encouraged me. They got on the floor with me. They crawled under the front pew to pray with me um, because people were grabbing my golly hopper and shaking it, trying to make me speak in tongues. And they were saying, you don't need that. And I had withdrawn under the front pew. And I want to tell you something. You know you are loved when a stout woman Four of them crawl under the pew with you to pray you through to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that was, that, those are the people that led me to the Lord. Well, the evangelists did too. Some plant, some water, but it's God that gives the increase. So I, I got a suspicion that we may be surprised at who the greatest soul winners in the kingdom might be. Okay, we got to stop. The Christian life lessons. Set a goal for what you want to hear. Stop ignoring this issue of rewards. God wants to give them, so we ought to earn them. Anticipate both the correction and encouragement of the Lord. Evaluate yourself periodically. Bring your desires to the Lord in prayer and act upon your holy ambition. Now, let me just give a sentence of explanation. Uh, when I say anticipate both the correction and encouragement of the Lord, you've got to understand if you're going to walk in rewards, you've got to be willing to let the Lord encourage you and you've got to be willing to let the Lord correct you. You need to read Hebrews 12 and understand that if you're not being corrected, something's not connected. Something's not connected if you're not being corrected. That's just a simple thing to remember. When I say evaluate yourself periodically, don't get into morbid introspection. But it's like when you're driving your car. It, most cars today have a gauge. And you can look at the gauge and tell about your oil pressure, your electrical system, your fuel, your engine temperature. And then there's another one, a speedometer, but we don't pay any attention to that one. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I, I, don't, I don't get in the car worried about gauges. I don't pull over every two miles to check the gauges. I just glance down. I just want to be sure everything's as it ought to be. And that's what I'm talking about. Take time to question your heart. Take time to go before the Lord and open your heart to him. And you say, well, pastor, you've given me a lot to do. I want to say this, and, and I'm through with the notes, but this is accomplished by love and by the transforming power of his presence. You and I don't have enough discipline. We don't have enough discipline to make everything right in our life, or you'll be living in legalism and all kinds of stuff. See, when Peter was at perhaps his lowest point before um, the day of Pentecost and after the crucifixion, Peter, he had a horrible past behind him. He, he had denied the Lord, and he had led the way in denying the Lord. And he did it three times. So he had a horrible past behind him. He had a shattered present that he was living in. His dreams were dashed. His, his, his character was dashed. His reputation was gone. And Jesus is talking to him and Jesus says, Peter, 
you're free now, but the day's coming when you're going to, you're going to be led about against your will. And the Bible says that he understood Jesus was saying, you're going to be martyred. So here's a guy with a bad past, a shaky present, and a horrible future. And Jesus came up with a counselor in Jerusalem that he could go to and get the counselor. No, wait a minute. That's somebody else I'm thinking of. That wasn't Peter. Yeah. Oh, I remember now. Jesus kept asking the same question over and over again. Yes, there's nothing wrong with counselors. But sometimes this moment, like Peter had, is what we need. This is what Jesus said. Peter can't live with his past. He can't live with his present. He's fearful of the future. And Jesus ended the first part of the conversation by saying, Peter, do you love me? Not, Peter, let's talk about are you lapsarian, super lapsarian? Are you, um, you know, are you Arminian? Are you Calvin? Peter, do you love me? They talked a little bit more. Talked about his failure. And Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? And then they go on and talk more, some more. And a third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is now ticked off. He's irritated because Jesus keeps asking do you love me? And of course, Peter's going to say yes. But something happened that third time. It says that Peter was grieved. It meant that something was going on in his heart. And Peter changed his answer from yes, Lord, to Lord, you know all things. You know about my past. You know about my present. And you obviously know about the future. You know all things. And you know that I love you. And it wasn't exasperation saying, how many times do I have to say it? Yes, 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 yes. I love you. I believe with all my heart it was Peter saying, now I understand the question. Yes, Lord, in spite of my weakness, in spite of my failure, you want to know if I love you. And I do. And then Jesus told him to get busy. Get busy. See, Jesus knows how important love is. I'm going to end with this story here, but uh, I'm going to get up so you'll believe me. And uh, <laughs> before my dad died, it was, in fact, it was the death of my grandmother. We, we were in, uh, in Bonifay, Florida, Holmes County, which is where all my family's from, uh, just about it. Uh, and my dad took us to the place where he was born. It's now just a wooded area, power lines going through it. But there was a little cabin there where he was born. And that touched us and took us to the place where a house was that he grew up with a couple of dozen siblings, you know, and I mean, literally. And he told us this happened here, this happened there. And it just, it was just such a moving time. And uh, we're thrilled, we're laughing. Then he takes us to another place near the courthouse and he says, this is, this is where I ask your mama to marry me. And I said, really? And boy, we're all into that. And, and he said, your mama was only 13 when I asked her to marry me. So her mama made me wait till she was older. So I married her when she was 15. And... Uh, he said, two things happened here of great significance. And we said, what were they? He said, 
First of all, even though your mama accepted my proposal at 13, she said there's going to be no messing around till we're married. My daddy was not raised in church. And he said, we were sitting here in the wagon. I mean, it was like Little House on the Prairie, a horse-drawn wagon. And he said, I, was, I had the, the reins in my hand, and I, I was so proud that she said she'd marry me. And uh, he said, I had never kissed her, never touched her. And I just reached over and put my hand on her knee, which was covered by her dress that went halfway to the ground. And she said, did you hear what I said about we're not going to mess around? And he said to himself, well, I just put my hand on her knee. He said, and then before I knew it, she backhanded me in the jaw, knocked me off the wagon, and looked at me and said, I meant what I said. I said, oh, yes, ma'am. She said, there's something else you need to know if you want to marry me. She said, I know that you drink. And my daddy, my mom said this, my daddy is an alcoholic. It's made our home miserable. I want you to know I'm not going to marry a man that drinks. Well, my dad said his heart sank. He said, because I was an alcoholic. He said, at our home, he said, in those days you'd go out on the porch and there would be a bucket uh, with you know, a gourd thing that you could dip water. He said, we had one for water and we had one for moonshine. We were a family of moonshiners. He said, and I drank every day from the time I was 12 years old. He was 18, well, he was uh, 15 or 17 rather at, at the time. No, that's right, 18. He was 18 at the time. So he had drank every day for better part of six years. And he said, I had all the classic symptoms of an alcoholic. He said, I didn't know what it was like to not drink. And he said, she told me she wouldn't marry me if I drank. And my brother said, well, Daddy, what would you do? He said, I quit drinking. And my other brother said, how long did it take? He looked at us and tears flowing down his cheek. He said, boys. It didn't take any time at all. I quit that moment. I never took another drink. And they said, how did you do that? He said, I looked at a woman that I knew I couldn't live without. And I had to decide, did I want the hooch or did I want Eunice? He said that I wanted Eunice. And I thought, this doesn't happen. This does not happen. And he said, one of them boys in the Old Testament wanted a wife and he had to work for seven years for her. He's talking about Jacob, but he couldn't remember who it was. He said, the Bible says that it was only like a few days to him because he loved her so much. He said, I, I reckon I just loved your mama so much that alcohol lost its grip like that. And I believe the Lord helped him. I, I, I do. But my daddy wasn't even a Christian at the time. But I believe God helped him. And what I'm trying to tell you is that some of us need a getting knocked off the wagon moment. 
not for putting our hand where it doesn't belong, but for discovering there's something that happens when love is present that doesn't happen. You know, we, we, we teach discipline, and there's a reward for discipline. But I want to tell you, discipline is the lowest form of devotion. Doing it because I have to. Doing it because I'm making myself. But when you love, no cost is too great. So I want to tell you, I preached this long message today. And we got a late start today. That's why I'm finishing late. They started late. And it was because the, that guy in the first service preached too long. <laughs> it's his fault. And I'm going to have a talk with him later. No, this is my fault. It's all my fault. I mean, I mean the schedule. But loved ones, this is so heavy on my heart. God has been using these three messages to help us fall in love again. To help us follow in love again. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get out of a trial. That's my first move anytime I have a trial. But loved ones, sometimes love says you just press through. And some of us are in places we're going to have to press through without anger. We're just going to have to love him. And in the days ahead, God is going to do something phenomenal with men and women that will say, Lord, this is for you. I love you. I love you. Father, we, we, are, we are way out of time. And I ask you to forgive my twin who preached the first service and went way over. I'll deal with him. Father, we want to serve you more excellently. We want to love you more thoroughly. We want to look at you like my daddy looked at my mama and said, whatever it costs, I will pay. Though he slay me, I will trust him. When we're walking with sorrow, help us to understand that we're blessed when we don't understand. I just ask you to help people.